When was the last time that you experienced conflict? Was it a verbal altercation with an inept coworker this past week at the office? Did your spouse get so frustrated with you that he spewed verbal vomit in earshot of anyone listening to the conversation? Did somebody just need to be set straight? And so you use the opportunity on your most recent rant on social media to put them in their place. Did your best friend just do the unthinkable, leaving you hurt and disappointed? Did you chew on one of your children just three minutes before you walked into church today? And as you were making your way into into the sanctuary, you slapped a grin on your face and responded to the greeter, wonderful, and how are you? (laughs) Friend, when was the last time that you experienced conflict? Because you and I live in a fallen, sinful, broken world, conflict is inevitable. Because of sin, We are at odds with God, ourselves, and one another. I think that most of us don't like conflict. Oh yeah, there are a few people that are always looking for a good fight. But most people, they don't like conflict. The question is not, do you ever experience conflict? The real question is, how do you handle the conflict? Now, that's a question that merits some thoughtful response. So this morning, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to James chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. My hope this morning is to tell you the truth about conflict. So once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. James chapter 4, I'll begin at verse 1, I'll conclude at verse 12. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. So you kill and covet, but you can't have what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that the spirit he calls to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Come near to God. He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. 
Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. And when you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver, one judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, the understanding, and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. You and I can either have worldly conflict or godly conflict. That dichotomy seems to be commonplace in James's writings. In the previous passages, James has already told us that out of our mouth can come words of praise and words of cursing. In the immediately preceding passage of James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, he says, your wisdom can either be heavenly or hellacious. This dichotomy is nothing new for James. When James comes to our passage, he says that the way we handle conflict It can either be worldly or godly. James begins and ends our passage with a question. He begins James chapter 4 verses 1 to 12 by simply asking what causes fights and quarrels among you? His language is warlike. What causes fights? That's the word that means to wage war. What causes quarrels? That's a word that means to have a severe clash. He's asking the church, what causes fights and quarrels among you? What causes fights in your marriage, in your home, in the marketplace, in the workplace, at the ball field, in the church, in the culture? What causes these warlike skirmishes that take place in your life and mine? He's speaking to the entire congregation because the word you is second person plural. He's saying y'all. He's not just talking to a select few. He's not just pigeonholing just a couple of individuals. He's talking to the brothers and sisters that are gathering in the midst to worship the Lord. And he simply asks the question, what do you think causes all the fighting and the quarreling among you? I love it in the scripture when the question's not only asked, but the answer is given. And that's what James does next. What causes this warlike activity in your home and in your heart, in the workplace and in the church house? What causes these skirmishes is the evil desires that battle within us. Those evil desires, those desires, it's, it's a word that's elsewhere translated cravings or passions. It's the Greek word hedone. And from that Greek word, we get the English word hedonist. Hedonism is the belief in life that the highest purpose is your pleasure. In recent memory, there are probably two pretty popular hedonists in our American culture. One is Hugh Hefner and the other is Miss Piggy. (laughs) Hugh Hefner, the founder of Playboy, he was a professing and practicing hedonist. 
He declared that the highest goal of life, your personal pleasure. And Miss Piggy, she famously said, whatever moi wants, moi gets. That has to be the motto and the slogan of hedonism, right? And so James tells us that the the reason we fight, the reason we quarrel, the reason we have warlike battles that go on in our lives is because of the desires that battle within us. That this, this fighting, this quarreling in particular and sin in general, it's an inside job. It's not something that happens to you externally. It's something that happens to you internally. You can't blame anybody else saying so-and-so pushed my buttons or so-and-so made me do it. No, no, no. The reason you fight and the reason you quarrel is because of the hedonistic activity and the desires that wage war within your very spirit. This is a heart problem, my friends. That's why Jeremiah says that the heart is a deceitful place. It's beyond all cure. That's why David pleads with the Lord, create within me a new heart, O God. I don't just need heart repair. I need a heart transplant. I need for you to do what only you can do. Please just give me a fresh start. Give me a brand new heart. And James says it's because of those desires that battle within us. Once again, that term is a warlike term, battle, fight, skirmish. It was Henry Blackaby who gave that very common, very popular analogy stating that within your soul, there is a dogfight. That right now, there's a good dog and a bad dog that's waging war for your soul. And Henry Blackaby would always say, you know which dog wins? Whichever one you feed. There's a battle that's going on inside of you. Even for you, believer, Christian, there is a battle that rages. And, and, and James asked the question, what causes these fights and quarrels that are among us? And the answer is, it's an inside job. It's a heart problem that we have. It's the desires that well up inside of us. We don't get what we want, so what do we do? We kill and covet. That's what James says. The word kill is a word that means senseless slaughtering. And maybe... Maybe the good people of Jerusalem literally were killing each other. Oh, but more probable is that they were slaying each other's reputation. They were murdering each other's character. They didn't get what they want, so they slandered one another. They didn't get what they want, so they murdered each other's good reputation. And he says, we covet Now, most of us know that covet is a spiritual word, but we don't have a clue what it means. I mean, we know that it's one of the top 10, that in the 10 commandments, the 10th one is thou shalt not covet. We think to ourselves, God had nine pretty good ones and he didn't quite know what to do next. So to round out the top 10, he just kind of threw in that one liner, thou shalt not covet. We, We know that we're not supposed to do it, but we don't really know what the it is that we're not supposed to do. What does it mean to, to covet? Well, it really means to want something that doesn't belong to you. My preaching professor, Haddon Robinson, would oftentimes say it's to want more of what you have enough of already. It's the man who just must have the latest Ford F-350, even though he's got a 
perfectly good truck parked in the driveway. It's the woman who's got to have those shoes or that purse, even though her closet is stuffed with shoes and boots and purses and all of them still fit. It's the man who, for whatever reason, just wants a hot new wife. And yet the slightly older model that's seated right beside him is perfectly fine. To covet means to want something that doesn't belong to you. To want something that you have enough of already. And James says that we quarrel and we fight. And if we don't get what we want, then our sinful depravity will lead us to killing, slandering, slaughtering each other verbally or literally. And it will lead to coveting that we will want something that doesn't belong to us. James says the answer is right there in front of you. The answer to all this fighting and quarreling is prayer. You don't receive because you don't ask, James says. You remember what he said in chapter one? If anyone lacks wisdom, all he has to do is ask and God will give it freely. It would seem that ours is a God who wants to give us good gifts And that what he wants us to do is simply to come to him in prayer and simply ask for it. And James says, the reason you don't get what you want is because you don't ask. Oh, but there's a caveat there because James says some of you ask and you ask with wrong motives so you can spend what you get on your pleasure. That word pleasure is the same word as desire. It's hedone, once again, right there in the passage. Because if, if, if God were to give you everything that you asked for, you would use it on your own selfish pleasures. The reason you don't get what you ask for is because God knows that you ask with wrong motives. Friend, I got to be honest with you that one of the hardest things for me to do is to pray And have my prayers untethered with my emotions. To have my prayers untethered with my selfish emotions. Some of you have told me last Sunday was the hardest thing you've ever done. Cold call, door to door evangelism, knocking on a door and you don't know who or what is on the other side of that door. And I get it, I was as nervous as you going out. But I got to be really honest with you. That was a piece of cake compared to praying untangled from my selfishness. Because every time I pray, I have a mixed bag of motives. Oh, I can try to say as piously as possible. But I'm I'm saying this in a a godly way. Oh, Lord, please hear my prayer. It has nothing to do with me. (laughs) But more times than not, it does have something to do with me. And one of the toughest things for me is probably one of the toughest things for you to actually pray and have your prayers untethered from your selfishness. For you to be able to say like Jesus, "Not, not my will, but your will be done. You remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus prayed that not once or twice, but three times. He was furrowing faithfulness into his spirit. And maybe you and I need to do the very same thing today. Where we go to God and we say, Lord, we are praying to you. And we're doing our best to untangle, untether, untie our selfishness to our prayers. Because we know 
that if you gave us that promotion, if you gave us that blessing, if you gave us that increase, if you gave us what we are asking for, we probably would just use it on ourselves. And we would say, we're blessed to be a blessing to others, but probably, Lord, we would use whatever you give us to satisfy our own pleasures. So God, today, help me to pray Allow my prayers to be untied from my selfish motives. James says this must be a pretty big problem in the church because then he gets to verse four and he speaks of the adulterous people. And I'm sure there are individuals in the crowd that bristled up a little bit and said, hey, wait a minute, buddy. Now, now you just stepped over the line. I ain't cheated on nobody. I've been faithful to my spouse all these years. I'm going to continue to be faithful to my spouse. Who are you to say, Pastor James, that I'm an adulterous individual? Oh, but of course, he's not talking about the marriage that you have with your spouse. He is talking about your connection with God. For just like the people of the Old Testament, we flirt and chase after the world and we commit adultery against our God. So James reminds the church that we are an adulterous people for if we are friends with the world, we are enemies with God. If we are friends with the world, then we are enemies with God. James says when conflict comes, one of the ways you can handle it is friendship with the world. One way you can handle it is worldliness. And what is worldliness? Worldliness is putting things together in such a way that the devil likes it. That's worldliness. It's putting life together in such a way that the devil likes it. And in worldliness, nobody wins and everybody loses and the devil dances and Jesus is grieved. That's worldliness. It's it's living life in such a way that Jesus is not pleased with the outcome. Oh, when I think about uh, being lured into the world and when I think about sin and worldliness that, that, that dominates my mind and heart just like it dominates your mind and heart, I am so reminded of the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, at the moment of our sin, God becomes very unreal to us. It's not that the devil wants you to hate God. He just wants you to forget about God in the moment. He just wants you to live in the moment and in that moment to forget about the reality of God. Is that true for anybody in the house other than the preacher? Okay, I'm by myself, but that's okay. Because James says, I'm exactly right, because James stands on this authority as well, that that we live in such a way that in moments, in pockets of time, that, that the worldliness comes at us, sin comes at us, that fighting and quarreling erupts within us to the point that we almost act and look and live as if God doesn't exist. Have you ever had a conversation And it got a little heated. And the end result was a fight, a quarrel, a disagreement. And you walk away from that conversation, you think to yourself, "Uh, that didn't go the way I planned. If you ever had that self-talk, then my friends, probably you handled that scenario in a worldly way. The opposite of worldliness Or worldly conflict is godly conflict. Everything hinges in our passage in verse 6. Everything swivels in verse 6. I want you to revisit that with me. 
But he being God gives more grace. Let me just stop right there. Is there anybody in the house that could testify that God is a giver of more grace? Is there anybody who comes today to say, Lord, I need some more grace. I need more grace in my marriage. I need more grace in my parenting. I need more grace with my coworkers. I need more grace with church uh, people. I need more grace with people that I uh, bump into on the street. I just need some more grace. Is there anybody here who needs more grace? I want you to know you came to the right spot because our God is a dispenser of grace and he never runs out. He never runs out. He's a God of more grace. Where there is conflict, he gives more grace. When we handle it in worldly ways, he gives more grace. But he gives more grace, and that's why scripture says, and he's quoting Proverbs 3.34, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you could summarize worldly, uh, worldly conflict in one word, it would be Pride. If you can summarize godly conflict in one word, it'd be humility. The opposite of worldly conflict is godly conflict. The opposite of pride is humility. And so the way we handle the conflict that comes at us, that wells up inside of us, is that we need to be humble. Once again, all of us know that's a great word. It's a good church word. But what does that look like? What does humility look like? So in response to that anticipated question, it is James who gives a rapid fire about 10 or 11 imperatives. They're just commands that come at the congregation one right after the other. He begins by saying, submit to God, resist the devil, come near to God. Those three form a three-legged stool. It's the foundation of humility. That if you want humility in your life, if you want to handle conflict in a godly way, submit to God. The word submit is a military term. It means to arrange oneself under. It means to acknowledge that God is in charge and you're not. So I willingly, voluntarily arrange myself under the authority of God. Submit to God. Resist the devil. That too is a military term. To resist means to oppose. And we as followers of Jesus are to oppose anything and everything smells like the devil so we submit to God we oppose the devil and we come near to God we learned last week that God is not brought down to us in the form of an idol we mentioned last Sunday from Acts 17 that idols were created in the hopes that gods and goddesses that were far off would somehow come near to the people But the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the self-movement of God. It is God voluntarily coming to us so that we may come to God. It's the only religion in the world that does that, where, where God actually stoops down to our level, and that's the gospel. So God comes to us in Jesus Christ, and through Jesus Christ, we come to God. This is the foundation of humility. Charles, we are to submit to God, resist the devil, and come near to God. On the back side of humility, there's purity. Because the next two commands say, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. On the back side of humility, there is purity. James has already talked about purity. James chapter 1, verse 27 Pure religion is to look after orphans and widows. 
to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's pure religion. And James is talking to the crowd, the congregation that day, and he says, you need to wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Because when pride slithers in, then the end result is sin, and the end result is is a division in the heart and the mind. James says that we are to start with ourselves, right? He says, wash your hands. He didn't say, uh, wash the person to your right's hands or the person to your left's hands, because that's really where the problem resides. He didn't say, you know, you need to wash your spouse's hand because that's a real troublemaker in your, in your, in your life. No, he says, no, the, you got to start with you. Wash your hands. Before you begin to try to clean up anybody else, before you ever try to purify anybody else, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve. Mourn, wail. These are rapid fire commands that James gives to the church. Grieve. What are we supposed to grieve? Friend, the closer I get to my Savior, the more acutely aware I am of my sin. And in response, I grieve over that sin. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 that godly grief brings about repentance that leads to salvation. Worldly grief only brings death. We are to grieve over our sin. The closer we get to the Savior, the more aware we are of our sin. So he tells us to grieve. He tells us to mourn. Big brother Jesus in the famous Sermon on the Mount said, blessed are they who mourn for they will be comforted. Jesus is not merely saying, blessed are the crybabies. Blessed are people who could cry at the drop of a hat. No, he's saying, blessed are the people who are broken over their sinfulness. They mourn over their sinfulness. In his commentary on the, on the book of James, it is Kurt Richardson who says that mourning and moaning have a close relationship. Friend, let me ask you, when was the last time you moaned and mourned over your sin there are times when we will mourn and moan over somebody else's sin can you believe he did that can you believe that she is caught up in that can you believe that happened to them i mean we would uh mourn and we would moan over somebody else's sin when was the last time friend that you mourned and grieved over your own sin James says that the the response of this should be wailing. The wailing, that word means uh, uncontrollable crying. It's loud. There's a great volume to it. Oh, we've said before that the carpet here at the altar should be tear-stained. That you and I come over brokenness, brokenness of our own sin. And we have tears that stream down our cheeks. And this carpet down here should be tear-stained. People realizing the great sacrifice that was given by Jesus Christ. And so we live a life in perpetual uh, grieving over sin and mourning and, and wailing. James finishes up this rapid fire succession of commands by saying, change your laughter into mourning. Your joy should be gloom. You're making jokes in the world when actually you should be making war against your own sinfulness. Then he just simply finishes it up by saying, be humble. 
The opposite of worldly conflict is godly conflict. The opposite of pride is humility. Pride says, I'm better. I'm right. I will win. You ever had those conversations? You ever led with those words? I'm right. I'm better. I will win. This is a little bit of a comical story, but it's a true story. Listen, a few days ago, a few weeks ago, I was trying to give my dog Boston his medicine. And he put in his mouth, spit it back out. I put it back in his mouth, spit it back out. And I promise you, I looked at this dog and I looked at him and I said, I will win. (laughs) And so eventually, oh boy, choked it down. But I I thought about that story when I'm writing this sermon this past week. Because I said to that canine, I said to my dog, I will win. What we say to our dogs, sometimes we say to our family members. And we say to church people. And we say to coworkers, I'm better. I'm right. I will win. The opposite of pride is humility. James says, be humble. Let Jesus lift you up. I can just think that he hears the echo of big brother Jesus. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Be humble. Be low. Let let Jesus be the one to lift you up. Humility tells me that I should not only be able to see your sin, but I should be able to see my sin. See, pride does not let me to see my sin, but it leads me to see your sin. Humility says, yes, I see your sin, but I also see my sin. And humility prompts me to turn down the volume. Humility encourages me to listen more. Once again, James has already said this. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Humility reminds us that the ultimate goal is not winning the conversation, but the ultimate goal is worshiping the Christ. So humility reminds us that this is how we handle conflict in a godly way. In the last paragraph, James says, brothers, do not slander one another. I almost had to stop and I sat back in my chair and I chuckled just a bit. James just called the church brothers. Earlier in the passage, these are the same people that are the adulterous, double-minded sinners. (laughs) Did you catch that? I mean, just a few moments earlier, you adulterous people, you sinners, you uh, double-minded individuals, brothers. I mean, he gets, he gets down towards the bottom. Brothers, when does he say brothers? After he talks about humility. Because when we are humble, we see each other by our identity. Our identity is saint if we're in Christ. Our identity is saint. Our activity sometimes could be sinner. But our identity is saint and that identity never changes. Brother, sister, don't slander each other. Don't slice and dice each other's reputation. Don't don't gossip about each other. When you do that, you act as if you are the lawgiver and you are the law. But that job's already been taken. The only one who can sit in that seat is the one who has the power to give life and destroy life, Jesus. 
So, so that position's already taken. As the lawgiver, as the judge, that position is already taken and it's filled completely by Jesus and he doesn't need our help. He can do it quite well. So then James comes to the end of our passage and he gives the second question because I told you at the beginning that this passage begins with a question and ends with a question. The second question is, who do you think you are to judge your neighbor? I think about conflict and I cannot help but think about Calvary. You know, that's why Jesus came. Jesus came because of the sinful conflict in your life and mine. Jesus, the God-man, stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. He lived a perfect life. He uh, climbed up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. He took your punishment and my punishment. He took eternal, eternal condemnation upon himself. And Jesus declared, it is finished. What's finished? Conflict is finished. Everything has been resolved. It is done. Mission accomplished. He bowed his head, gave up his ghost. They took his dead body off the cross, placed him into a borrowed grave. And on the third day, Jesus rose victorious over all conflict. I mean, I know there's still skirmishes today. I know there's still battles that, that, that are waged today, nationally, uh, politically, uh, economically, um, uh, individually. I, I realize that there are still battles and skirmishes, but I'm telling you, Christ is victorious over all things. So James comes to the very end and he says, you don't need to sit in the position of Jesus and issue out eternal judgment upon anybody else. God's got that. And Jesus is not looking for an assistant. He knows what he's doing. Friend, let me ask you, when was the last time you experienced conflict? Last week? Last night? Just a couple of minutes before you came into church? How did you handle it? Was it worldly or was it godly? Was it prideful? Was it humble? This past week I came across a story of a newlywed. They went to a bed and breakfast and they could tell that the lady that was checking them into their room was a very godly individual. In course of conversation, she said that she'd been married to her husband some 52 years. This newlywed couple then asked the lady, what is your secret? And she said, I want you to look at each other. And I want you to know that when conflict comes, that person you're looking at is not your enemy. You have an enemy, and your enemy wants family to be transformed into enemies. But you look at your spouse, and you always know, that's my family. And I will choose to love my family. The couple said, uh, those were well-spoken words, for we've never forgotten them. Friends, let me ask you, uh, when you look around this room... What do you see? Not a person is looking around, but really you can. You feel free. Look around. I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to weigh in on this, you better look at who you're talking about. I mean, look around. What do you see? You know what I see? Family. Listen, uh, when conflict comes in your house, in your heart, in the church, in the marketplace, whenever. When conflict comes, and it will, look around. 
These people are not your enemy. This is family. Now, the enemy will try to make your family into your enemy. But you have to choose to love family. Why? Because God in his infinite grace has chosen to love us. We were enemies of God, but he has made us adopted sons and daughters of God Almighty. Because of what God has done to us, then we demonstrate unto others. So we look around, we don't see enemies, we see family, and we choose to love family. Heavenly Father, we bow before you today, and Lord, I pray that if there's someone here listening to my voice who does not know you as Savior and Lord, maybe they don't even know that they're an enemy of God, but because of their sin, they're at odds with the Lord. And today, because of your grace and kindness, you've made it clear that it's only through Jesus Christ that someone who's an enemy can become a friend of God. For somebody listening to my voice and they've never made that confession of faith, they've never professed their love for Jesus, help that to be today. May they walk down, take one of the pastors by the hand. But Lord, I also pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for us to be the family that you have woven us together to be. Lord, we love you and we love each other and we thank you that you are a good, gracious, amazing God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.